Rarely do you have a season where all the coaches that started at the beginning are there by the end of the regular season. So which Pac-12 coach could be fired first in 2022? Let's go. Locked on Pac-12, your daily podcast on the Pac-12 Conference. It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Locked On Pac-12. I'm your host, Spencer McLaughlin, D1 play-by-play broadcaster. Thanks for making this your first listen or your first view of the day. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your number one source to stay up to date with the Conference of Champions, however long it exists into the future. Like, comment, subscribe, wherever you're listening to or watching the show. A big thank you to everybody out there who has done so already. The engagement's been great. The subscription numbers have been great. Download numbers have been great. I am just uh, overwhelmed with gratitude, frankly, with how the show has gone so far. And the season hasn't even started yet, but that happens this week. And we got uh, some interesting odds recently from our friends at Bet Online, proud sponsor here at the Locked On Podcast Network, on which Pac-12 coach is most likely to be fired first. And boy, do I have some thoughts on this particular list. Now, number one at the top, any Pac-12 fan who has followed the offseason really just the last year or two should know that at plus 225, the coach most likely to be fired first is Herm Edwards. And I don't think that there's any mystery here. If he gets off to a disaster start or has one game in particular, it kind of feels like he's on that sort of thin ice. If you lose to Eastern Michigan, if the Oklahoma State loss is 72 to 10, if you have a really ugly game where you're favored and you end up losing big, Herm could get fired on the spot. That is 1,000% possible, a la Clay Helton in 2021 when they got blown out by Stanford and then they decided to move on and the season ended at 4-8 and eight and now have Lincoln Riley. So Herm Edwards at the top, not surprising. Here's where it gets interesting, and I have several thoughts here. Behind him, not too far behind him, at plus 250, is David Shaw. I think these odds are way too high. Now, what the betting markets are probably looking at here is David Shaw's performance, which I talked about extensively yesterday on the show. And I have for for the last couple of months, frankly. I think those odds are way too high because Stanford is going to give David Shaw a much longer leash because as a university, they like football. They, They want to be good at it, but they're more about creating men of Stanford uh, as a result of players having played three or four years in in their program there. And there are a few coaches in the country who do that as well as David Shaw. He is, as a face of Stanford football, kind of the epitome of it, right? He's not loud. He's a really good guy. There's never been, uh, you know, a precarious comment or an off-field incident or anything like that. Like, it is just A-plus across the board for David Shaw as a human being, and that is why he remains Stanford's head coach. I think there are a lot of teams that that would have moved on from him at this point after a 4-8 2019 and a 3-9 2021 with a 4-2 2-20 sandwiched in there. Um, I, I think he would have, at the very least, been in more trouble at this point if he were at another school, but he's not. He's at Stanford, so I think that's too high. He'll get a pretty long leash, and I I just haven't seen or heard any buzz, really, with regards to his seat being hot other than here on the show. I think it should be. I think David Shaw, if I were the athletic director for Stanford prioritizing football, which is my favorite sport, college football, I would say David Shaw is on the hottest of seats this year 
as hot as Herm Edwards. But I think with the culture that has been established at Stanford and what we've seen, I do not think he could be the first coach uh, fired here in 2022. I don't think he'd be fired at all unless it was, you know, an 0-12 disaster and they started 0-7 or something. But that's not going to happen. They open with a brand of toothpaste this week in Colgate. So um, I, I don't see that happening. Not far behind him as the first Pac-12 coach to be fired. This is not whether or not a coach will be fired. This is first coach in 2022, according to our friends at Bet Online. Jed Fish at plus 260. I can't see this unless it really goes into the tank, right? I'm not saying Jed Fish has all the the job security in the world. I don't have a problem with him being in the top three percent. I would maybe have him fourth. He should be fifth, but he's not, uh, which I'll get to here in, in just a moment. I don't have a problem with him being in kind of the upper third because the first year did not produce a, a one-year turnaround the way you'd hope. There's been a lot of optimism this offseason with the recruiting and the transfer portal additions they've added, most notably Jaden Delora at quarterback. You now have to show it in on-field results, but if you show any amount of progress this year, that has to buy Jed Fish at least one more season. So if they win at least two, I think they're going to get to three wins. I won't be shocked if they get to more. They played a lot of close games last year, but... I've got them getting to three wins, but even if he just churns out two, right? If it's a win against North Dakota State, who's a very respectable and then some FCS school because they're, you know, the Alabama of the FCS level, you should beat them, but it's not going to be as easy as you would like. If you beat them and one Pac-12 school, that's progress. And then I think the seat is a little bit warmer going into 2023 if that's all they get, right? If it's a two in 10 year, then you look and go, okay, we'll give you one more year, but it has to come together and you got to be at least at 500. But if Jed Fish comes out and and wins any of their non-conference games aside from North Dakota State, they've got uh, San Diego State this weekend and then Mississippi State. That's got to buy him a lot of job security there. I do not think that that'd be a smart bet at plus 260. Uh, The next one is where it starts to get fascinating. And I would have Carl Durrell above Jed Fish, even though I've said I I don't think Durrell is a guy that that you'd fire after this year. Again, unless it was really, really bad, right? He's not on thin ice like Herm Edwards where one game could literally get you fired. I mean, if Herm Edwards has an embarrassing loss in the regular season, he could get the boot right then and there. But these other guys, right, Jed Fish, Carl Durrell, it has to be a prolonged stretch of really, really bad play if you're going uh, to give these coaches the boot and, and show them the door. He's at plus 400. I don't think that's bad value if you're a better out there. I could see him lasting later into the year, though, right? Maybe a little bit like Jimmy Lake in 2021 at Washington. He was there nine, week 9, 10 or so. I, I think sometime uh, a, a week or two after the Oregon game is when they ultimately fired him. So he, he was there for most of the season. And then as things really started to unravel, they decided to let him go. I could definitely foresee that happening. I think if you were smart, like if you really like betting, I'd put one unit, whatever that is for you, um, on, on Herm Edwards at plus 225 and one on Carl Durrell at plus 400. Because I, I think Shaw and Fish, those are hard sells for me uh, on, on them getting fired this year at all. I think Shaw would be more likely uh, to be fired than Jed Fish, but I don't think either is in a particularly vulnerable position, just given the the circumstances around their schools. Uh, But some interesting odds there. Uh, The rest of them, Justin Wilcox behind Durrell at plus 500, Chip Kelly at plus 1600, Jonathan Smith at plus 2500, 
Dan Lanning at Oregon, who hasn't coached a game at plus 5,000. That actually makes sense, which I'll tell you about in a sec. Uh, Jake Dickert at plus 6,600. Whittingham at plus 6,600. And then DeBoer and Lincoln Riley both at uh, plus 10,000 each. So uh, those two, not going to be the first coaches fired. uh, And I don't think they get fired at all. But uh, a couple thoughts on Justin Wilcox and why Dan Lanning makes sense being higher than Jake Dickert as the more likely coach to be first fired in the Pac-12 this year. But first to tell you about the lovely organization bringing you all these odds bet online the fastest and easiest way to check in on all your betting needs find all your favorite sports and events at the number one online source for odds lines and games find reviews and news of every league including major league baseball go mariners NFL, NBA, NHL, combat sports, esports, and even golf. Bet Online continues to be the top online resource for all your sports wagering information from live in game betting, scores, and podcasts. They have you covered. Head to Bet Online today or use your mobile device to learn more about the action happening today. Bet Online, where the game starts. Okay, so uh, I'll start with my thoughts here on uh, Justin Wilcox. I understand why he's fifth on this list at plus 500. He should be second. It should be Herm Edwards, number one, and it should be Justin Wilcox, number two, because those are two coaches who have, on the whole, not performed at a high level, at least not in terms of uh, what the expectation expectations should be surrounding their respective football programs. Herm should be number one. Wilcox should be number two. Instead, he just got a big extension. That's why he's lower on this list. But he has not had a great run of success at Cal. He's had two winning seasons. The eight-win season with a Red Box Bowl win has been his his crown jewel so far as the head coach. Is it a little harder to win at Cal? Are expectations a little lower? Yes. Do I like that as a Pac-12 fan? No, not really. I'd like everyone to have some high standards here. Going into this year, I would rather Justin Wilcox be playing out the final year of his contract in, in year five rather than having a six-year extension that, that inevitably is going to have some more expensive buyouts in it. I'd like to see him go and coach for his job this year. That's sort of cutthroat attitude I think you see in the superior conferences in the country like the Big Ten and, and the SEC. They don't put up with mediocrity. Every program, even the ones that are down year in and year out, are always trying to get better. And Cal, it just feels like they're content to be consistently mediocre and over 500 every now and then. And I'm not a fan uh, of that mentality. I think it sucks for, for Cal Bears fans that that's the way they uh, approach it. And him being there at fifth at plus 500, yeah, it, it could happen. Would he be first? Probably not, because they just made a big commitment to him, so it seems unlikely that they would fire him at all, let alone the first guy to be gone when you have other coaches who you know could show less and get fired, right, than, uh, than what you have at Wilcox, less in a, in a negative sense. That didn't... I don't think that came out super clear, but I think you're... Under, I think, I hope, you understand what I'm trying to say. I think Justin Wilcox would have to show a lot. I mean a just absolute calamitous disaster, even more so than what I was talking about with David Shaw and Jed Fish. I think he'd have to be worse than that, and I don't think they will be uh, in order for him to get fired, so that's why he's that low on the list. Chip Kelly at plus 1,600. If you're going to take any of the guys who are plus 1,000 or more, I'd definitely take Chip. Um, or Jonathan Smith. Uh, nah, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I could see Jonathan Smith. I think he's just done too nice of a job so far. He should have some equity with with the Beavers football program there. Uh, But Chip Kelly, make it or break it year. He comes out, gets upset in one of the first three games and maybe loses uh, an early one to like a Colorado or somebody, or I think I'm pretty sure they play Arizona. Yeah, that could be a fire on the spot. Like I actually think Chip 
is in a situation closer to, to Herm Edwards than you might think in that one really bad loss could cause a reset there. But I think they come out, probably start 4-0. Uh, I think I have them starting 5-0 and as well. I'd have to double-check on, on their schedule there. But I think they're going to start 5-0 and this year and probably be around the top 25, and that'll that'll get them a long enough leash. But of the long shots, uh, I think that's the the most likely one to happen there is, is Chip Kelly. Um, so Dan Lanning is in an interesting spot because he's uh, a new coach, right? Hasn't coached a game before and hasn't, uh, been at the University of Oregon before, and yet, according to the odds, he's more likely to be fired uh, sooner than Jake Dickert at Washington State, Kyle Whittingham, and then either of the other two new coaches, Kalen DeBoer or Lincoln Riley. The reason that that makes sense is, is is twofold. Number one, he's not coming into a situation like Kalen DeBoer at Washington where he's trying to turn her around in one year, right? That gives you some inherent leeway regardless of what circumstances are there when you're coming off of a four and eight season. So USC kind of has that a little bit too. Lanning is coming into an Oregon team that won 10 games and the North and was in the Pac-12 championship game in 2021 and was there in 2020, you know, asterisks, whatever, I don't, whatever that season, just, I wish it could stop coming up, frankly, but one day it will. And then 2019, Oregon was there as well. That's not a situation where you can come in and lose uh, a bunch of games early. Now, is it a disaster if they're one and two after their preseason or not preseason, their non-conference schedule because they have Georgia and BYU? No, because they should still still be able to win a, a good number of games in, in the Pac-12 slate. But the reason I think he's above Dickert, Whittingham, DeBoer, and Riley here is that even though he hasn't coached a game, the expectation is to win right away. Oregon's over-under win total is eight and a half. You should be around, if not over that number, in year one with the talent that is on that roster. He doesn't have to rebuild anything. He just has to come in, and if he's just as good as the previous coaching staff there, then Oregon should win eight to ten games. And if he's a little bit better, right, like in those games against Utah where Meyer Cristobal let's face it, kind of got outcoached, like just straight up. He got outcoached by Kyle Whittingham on on those two days. If he's better than that, then Oregon could be perhaps a more comfortable 9 or 10 win team or maybe sneak into 11. I don't see that as particularly likely. Um, but I think that's why Lanning is at that spot at seventh, despite not having coached a game, because the expectations are there, and they should be, because the roster is more ready to win at Oregon, I, I would argue, than USC, because they have you know brought in a lot of talent via the transfer portal. They should be able to win win football games, but USC themselves have, have, has, has, have, whatever, a tough schedule. And I think when you look at the conference slate, Oregon gets more breaks in that sense because their road games aren't as tough. Oregon only has four road games in, uh, in conference play. And those include Washington state, Oregon state, I believe uh, I'm just trying to run through all the schedules and whatnot. You can all look it up. Uh, of course they go at Colorado and at Arizona. Those are the four conference road games. As Pac-12 road games go, not exactly a gauntlet there for the Ducks this year. So expectations for Dan Lanning and company should be pretty darn high, and I think that's why he's there. Again, I'm not anticipating that he gets fired, but that, that's why he's rated right there is because the expectations of Oregon should be higher uh, given the production that is there. Let's switch gears now and uh, talk about the games upcoming this weekend a little bit. Gosh, I, I've just, I cannot wait. I just cannot wait any longer. Two days, we'll have a game to talk about. It's Arizona State and NAU. We'll be talking with Richie Bradshaw of Locked on Sun Devils uh, on tomorrow's show about that and what to look for in that game, which is why, if you haven't already, you should like and subscribe wherever you're listening or watching the show right now. 
And then on Friday is uh, the biggest one. And I think of the of, of all the, the 12 games we'll see in our beloved Conference of Champions this weekend, I think there are four that are pretty clearly the most important. And I'll rank them in order in terms of conference importance. Number one, Utah at Florida. That's the biggest game in the Pac-12. It's not Georgia and Oregon. It, it's not. Because if Oregon loses that game, even if they get blown out in that game, it's not a disastrous look for the Pac-12 because everyone understands that Georgia is several steps above Oregon as a, a football program right now coming off of a national championship. Even without all the guys they lost to the NFL, there's still an unbelievable level of talent on that Georgia roster. It's in Atlanta. That's going to be a, a de facto home game for the Bulldogs. No one's expecting Oregon to win that game. That's why I don't even have it in the top four most compelling games for the Pac-12 going into this weekend, the most important ones, right? Utah-Florida is easily, easily the most important game. Here's why. The Pac-12 brand as a whole is diminishing. No USC, no UCLA. The optics across the country are disarray, weakness. It's been trending down the last few years anyway, culminating with USC and UCLA announcing they're going to go to the Big Ten. If you send out your defending conference champion who has high expectations and college football playoff aspirations in 2022 down to an SEC school, that was 6-7 and seven in 2021 and has a new coaching staff, which could be a benefit, but there can be some adjustment there as well. Coaches are very rarely able to turn around and get the ball rolling quickly when, when, when a program ha- has fallen down from where their ceiling is. That's not a game the Pac-12 can really afford to lose. It, it, it really is not. Because if they can't beat a Florida team that is 6-7, and seven, it is just going to be storylines galore, and and it's going to spread amongst the fans as well, and there will be some credibility to it. People will start talking more and more about how the Pac-12 is so weak, and this is why you should leave, and you can't even have your conference champion beat an average SEC team just because it's on the road. And the betting markets have this as a close game. It's Utah minus three. It was two and a half, but it's moved out to, to minus three. I think the Utes win and cover. If I'm wrong and they lose, right, you just got to win the game at the end of the day. Doesn't have to be a blowout win. Doesn't have to be a comfortable win. Obviously, that would be really nice for for the Pac-12. But Utah's got to win that game. And if they don't, we could be talking about how that plays into conference realignment discussions because the brand of the Pac-12 would diminish significantly if your conference champion can't go beat a middling SEC football program that just had to hire a new staff. That is, I know it sounds like I'm putting a lot of pressure on Utah, because I am. I think that all the pressure in the Pac-12 this weekend is on Utah more than anybody else. Other teams have great opportunities, right? Oregon upsets Georgia, great opportunity. Colorado upsets TCU, it's a great opportunity. Arizona gets a win, there's a great opportunity. But nothing, no game is more important for the national brand strength of the conference. That's a nationally televised game. People are going to be watching. They remember the Rose Bowl and how great that game was with Utah and Ohio State. You have got to go down and win that game and make a statement that, no, we are not a complete rollover or, as Bill Walton would say, truck stop conference and that the Pac-12 is capable of at least being respectable at the national level. A lot of pressure on Utah this week. Second biggest game. 
in the in the Pac-12. I thought about this because there are four, right? The the Arizona San Diego State game, Colorado TCU, Oregon State, Boise State. I think the second biggest game is Oregon State, Boise State. And along with BYU, Boise State is just a perennial thorn in the side of the Pac-12. They have had a lot of success against the Pac-12. And then Washington, you know, took their coach and had even more success. But the Broncos are pesky. And they should be a good team this year. And that's going to be, in all likelihood, a competitive game for the Beavs, who are favored. I've got some pretty high hopes for Oregon State this year. I think they're going to go 8-4. and four. Between that game and Fresno State, they've got to win at least one. If they win both and they beat North Dakota State, or not North Dakota State, Montana State, in the, the other non-conference game they have, Oregon State could suddenly be sneaking into the top 25. And right now what the Pac-12 needs is teams that are just bouncing in and out of the top 25 and able to stay there. If Oregon State does that, I think they'd have a case. Would they get into it? Not necessarily. Maybe they'd have to win a couple conference games and be at 5 or 6-1 or and one to get there. But I think they would start getting votes and at least turn a couple of heads, not a ton, but a few, if you can beat Boise State and Fresno State and then be 3-0 and going into conference play, I think there's a chance they could get in the top 25. And that's why I think that's the second most important game. Because, again, that's what the Pac-12 needs. I mean, the whole narrative last year was, you know, Utah started out ranked, then had a couple early losses, fell out of it. And Oregon was the only ranked team for several weeks out of the Pac-12. That's a horrible look for the conference. You need teams that are getting the sort of national attention where fans are just doing a simple thing like reading an ESPN bottom line, looking at the top 25 and seeing who's there, right? If you don't put Pac-12 teams in that sort of category, in those sorts of discussions, to be one of the best teams in the country, one of the 25 best teams in the country, you just start to lose that that respect. And that Boise State game, I think, could do a lot for the Beavs in their season and could really catapult them forward. Uh, if they win that game, I definitely think they go down uh, and feel confident and get a win against Fresno State with a, a new staff down there. Uh, third most important game, Colorado and TCU. Now, here's an interesting note about this. Again, for those of you gamblers out there, I think there's value on Colorado here. The line opened at TCU minus eight. This game is in Boulder, right? And it's week one. So everybody's got high hopes. No football team out there knows that they're a bad team yet. And I don't think Colorado is going to be very good this year. I could be totally wrong. And with any of my predictions, it's all the same. If I'm wrong, I'll come on here and tell you, yep, I whiffed. Here's where we're at now. Colorado in that game opens as an eight-point underdog. The public loves TCU in this game. I mean, loves them. They've been getting buzz on shows like College Game Day about being a Big 12 dark horse, and they could be sneaky. No one wants to play them. As a result of that, and just I guess the public really likes the Horn Frogs here, this line has moved out to 13.5. Now, I don't think Colorado is going to win this game. But could they cover 13 and a half at home? Last year, they went four and eight. They played a Texas A&M team that went on to knock off Alabama and had, I believe, a nine-win 2021 season playing in the SEC. They beat them 10 to seven in Boulder. A&M beat Colorado 10 to seven, and it was early in the year. 
If you match up those two teams in 2021, Texas A&M in Week 10 against Colorado in Boulder, I do not think that is a 10-7 game. But in Week 1, before you've worked out the kinks, it favors the underdogs and the teams that, you know, like I said, don't know they're bad yet. It's a completely different vibe in Week 1 compared to Week 10 if you're 2-8 and eight or 2-9, and nine, whatever. You get what I'm trying to say. There is a completely different feel. Doesn't mean upsets can't happen when teams have that low of a record, but motivation matters a whole heck of a lot. And Colorado is going to be just as fired up as TCU will be for this game because the Buffs have a chance to completely flip the narrative on how people view them going into 2022, right? They could make me take an early L on this show and shift our perception of the Buffs entirely if they can come out and win this game. But that is a massive point spread movement. To go from 8, which is where it opened at, to now 13.5, I think the Buffs cover that, right? Especially with that half-point hook. I, I think Colorado can cover 13.5 at home in, in Week 1. I don't think they win. But that is just too big of a number to say that TCU, who was you know solid in... 2021 five and seven solid um so again not not great but had a couple of decent wins i i don't know if with sunny dykes they're going to be that much better in week one rocking rolling and ready to go um so i i think colorado covers that there but i think that's the third biggest game because again of what that can do right all the conference realignment discussion the pac 12s week and the pac 12s no good well if colorado knocks off tcu Pac-12 can look at the Big 12 and say, hey, those are two pretty comparable programs right there. TCU, the last 20 years or so, has been way above Colorado, and the Buffs just beat them as almost a two-touchdown underdog. That could be really important. And finally, uh, the most important game that comes in ranking fourth this week in the non-conference slate. I am so excited, as you can tell, for these games to get started. I know you all are as well. Every time I see a team... Uh, a team Twitter account tweet out, you know, like, oh, it's game week or this many days. I'm like, gosh, can it just be now? Can it just happen? Give me the game day, baby. Let's go. Arizona at San Diego State. We're going to find out how ready Arizona is to make a leap here. Because San Diego State, that's a solid football program. That is a solid. They were, I believe, an 11 or 12 game winner in 2021. They have been a good team in the Mountain West year in and year out. They beat Utah early last season. If Arizona goes in and pulls that upset, I don't think it's doing a ton for the conference nationally, but it's doing a lot for Arizona and where they could be trending already. I have hopes that they're going to be able to build back here under Jed Fish, and I like what they've done in their offseason more than some other teams in the Pac-12. I still think they're a year, maybe two, away from being good and consistent, but that could change if they go and pull that upset. They're only a six-point underdog, right? And look, is it a Mountain West team? Is it an inferior conference? Yes. but Arizona has been so bad, they they would not have... I don't think they would have even been competitive in the Mountain West the last couple of years. They have been that bad, and I think that if they're able to go and pull that upset, which I don't think they're going to do, but I've been wrong before, and I will be wrong again, I think if they go in and, and win that game, we can learn a lot about Jed Fish and that Arizona Wildcats team in 2022. Can not wait. Appreciate everyone listening. See you next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day.